Good. Well, it's been a bit of a slog, hasn't it, over the last four or five weeks with us looking and exploring this, this preach or this teaching that Jesus gives to this crowd, we are told, of a few thousand people. And it's made up of, a, as we've seen, a mixture of him talking directly to his disciples, particularly in response to Peter's question, but also then to the wider crowd and all who are listening. And it's been uh, quite, quite a challenge, not just, I'm sure, to those who were there listening at the time, but to us today and everyone that's come before us and everyone who will come behind us or after us on the necessity for us to take seriously Jesus' warning, warnings of his return. Remember, we are in this season of grace, a season of grace where Jesus and God the Father as well ultimately are looking to people to turn to repent, to give up their, 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 their love of the things of this fallen world and turn and to focus upon what God enjoys and the things that he wants us to focus upon before it is too late. And it's been a journey as we've have gone through this and today we will look at the final section of this preach of Jesus. I'm very aware that we didn't get to last week uh, Luke uh, settling your accuser in Luke, where are we? Luke 12, Luke 12, 57 to 59. But if you were here last week, you will, I will leave that to yourselves as a bit of homework to take that and understand this application in these over these last four or five weeks. Because if you have been following us, you will understand exactly what Jesus is saying in that parable about, um, in essence, dealing with the person who is accusing you before it's too late. It follows the same flow. So there's a bit of reading for you um, over your cup of tea when you get home today. But this morning, we are going to be looking at, or beginning Luke 13, and we'll be looking at the first nine verses. And our title for this final aspect of Jesus' message is really, he's come to that point of bluntness. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. It is as simple as that. Repent or perish. Let's read together, or sorry, let's open your Bibles if you have them with them, and let's read this. Luke 13, verse 1 says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 of whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, 
do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of your word, the truth of your word. And this morning, Lord, we come before you afresh to learn from you, to learn from your word. So I just pray, Lord, that you use me as your instrument this morning. Lord, help me to speak clearly to your people. And I pray for us all, Lord, that you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the message you want us to take away with us into this next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. On April the 14th, 1912, the Titanic, who was sailing from Southampton to New York, collided with an iceberg. The ship very tragically sank a couple of hours after the collision and 1,500 people perished. On September the 11th, 2001, members of the Al-Qaeda extremist group hijacked four planes. Two of those planes, they flew into the World Trade Center. One of those planes they flew into the Pentagon and the other crashed in a field after those on board realised what was happening and tried to take back control. 2,977 people died on that day due to that event. And on the 14th of June 2017, 72 people sadly perished in the Grenfell Tower Block fire in London. We could easily stay here all day and share stories of tragic situations around the world where people had woken up just like any other day who were just going about their everyday business who were then caught up in tragic situations where they ended up losing their lives. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Do or did these people die because they were worse than you or I? Was their tragic fate linked to them being worse sinners than you or I? And were they being punished by God because of it? Our passage today, in, in our passage today, Jesus asks a similar rhetorical question in response to some information that he had received 
from people in the crowd to whom he was ministering to. A question based on some misguided understanding of God's word, in this instance anyway, particularly around the consequences of sin. Verse 1 <coughs> helps us to set the scene here. There were some present at that very time, this verse tells us, who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't get any backstory as to why these people shared this information with Jesus or what Jesus may have said to provoke them to share this information with him. But what we can deduce is their motive by Jesus' response to them. Verse 2, And he said to them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? It is obvious that some sort of event has happened at the hands of Pilate which brought on the deaths of these Galileans in question as they were making their customary sacrifices. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea whose responsibility it was to uh, uh, impose justice, uh, justice and public order in his province and also to ensure that the uh, taxes were collected. It was Pontius Pilate, if you remember, who would be the one who would give the order for Jesus to be flogged and be crucified, as we will see as we, we travel through Luke's account of Jesus' life. His reign, by all accounts, was quite a harsh one. As Jewish sources accuse him of being greedy, of being cruel, with no regard for the Jewish religion. And as an example, the first century Jewish historian Josephus, um, in the book of his writing, The Jewish Wars, wrote about an event um, that gives us a glimpse, if you will, into Pilate's methods. And I just want to read uh, just a bit of a section of it, just to give you a flavour. So later, he... So this is Pilate. Later he provoked another riot by spending the sacred fund called the Corban. Corban was the money that was put aside from the people, put aside for God's work in the temple. But Pilate here uses that money to build an aqueduct, bringing water over a distance of some 40 miles the people took offence at this, and when Pilate was visiting Jerusalem, they crowded around his podium and raised an outcry. He had foreseen trouble from them and had sent in soldiers armed but dis disguised as civ in civilian clothing to mingle with the crowd. Their orders were not to use swords but to cudgel vocifurious protesters with their batons. He now gave them the signal from his podium. The beating began and many of the Jews were killed by direct blows 
and many others trampled to death by their own people in the ensuring rush to escape. The rest of the crowd were stunned into silence by the fate of all those who lost their lives. Were these Galileans of whom the crowd were referring to caught up in a similar situation? The truth is we don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. But in some respects, that in itself isn't important. What is important is why Jesus responds to them in the way that he does, by asking them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You see, there was a common belief amongst the Jewish nation that tragedies and physical ailments were the consequence of sin. But not just the sin of the person in question, but also potentially the sins of the relatives who had gone before them, which they had now inherited. We see a glimpse of this thinking in John's Gospel when Jesus passes by a blind man who had been blind by birth. His disciples turn to him and ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this uh, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their understanding on this belief is founded upon the alleged cursing Israel would receive for disobedience to God found in the Old Testament writings. As an example, Moses sharing with the people the commandments God had given him said in Exodus 20, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image, anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. And this is the part. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. So reading this passage you can understand why those um, who, who had informed Jesus of the death of these Galileans may well have held this view that their deaths, uh, it was the consequences of their sin or even the sin of those who had gone before them that had resulted in God dealing with them in this way. But Jesus quickly and bluntly denies the connection in this case challenging them with a counter-question, do you think these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Notice Jesus doesn't jump down the rabbit hole here of looking at the individual sin of these people who were killed, nor did he explore their faithlessness to God. No, Jesus uses this situation to teach the listeners a bigger question, a bigger lesson. 
founded upon the coming judgment by saying in verse 3, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I bet they weren't expecting that. They weren't expecting that response from Jesus. As we've seen throughout our journey of Luke, Jesus is compassionate. He is compassionate, often showing compassion for those who meet, who are suffering, particularly within those who are poor. But here, in Jesus' response, he is warning his listeners not to interpret this event as if it were only related to other people, or it was their sin. It was their sin that caused their deaths. Saying, no, don't interpret this event as if it's related just to other people, but understand it in the light of the consequence to all people at the end of days, including themselves. Think bigger. Yes, those Galileans were sinful. Of course they were sinful. All humanity is sinful. And it was a tragedy that they lost their lives. But it wasn't because their sin was worse or greater than anyone else's in this instance. It was because of sin. Full stop. That's the point Jesus is making. It's because of sin. It was because they lived in a sinful, unjust, cruel world and tragically succumbed to the consequences of the mess Adam got us into during the early days of humanity. Here, Jesus challenges them that when any disaster strikes, though it is a terrible thing, and disasters are, they are to use it as a reminder that they too will perish one day unless they repent and turn from their sin back to God. Jesus emphasises this point again by referring to another uh, uh, incident. He goes on in verses 4 and 5 to say this, for those, (coughs) (coughs) excuse me, for those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, <clears throat> do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. Here he goes again. No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Donovan has mentioned in the Gospel of John when Jesus restores the eyes of the blind man. You remember the story when he picks up the mud from the floor and spits into it, makes the clay and and pushes it into the man's eyes and he goes, he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. That's the only account that we have of, of of this pool. This story that Jesus is referring to, these Um, 18 are not mentioned anywhere else either in the Bible or it's seemingly outside the Bible in other literature of the time but it's believed that Siloam was an area just outside the south um, south uh, east south, south east side of the walls of Jerusalem 
and the tower is thought to have been part of the very aqueduct that Pilate had built in the book, in the account that I read you from Josephus' book. That this is another tragic event in which 18 people perished, seemingly, seemingly because they must have sinned grievously in order to deserve such a fate. But Jesus again says, no, no, and uses this event as another example to make his point that all are sinners and all will face not necessarily just a mere temporal tragedy but definitely an eternal tragedy because of their sin if they do not repent. To further make his point, he tells those standing listening a parable. He says a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. The fig tree here represents Israel. The man represents God and the fruit which the man is looking for represents the repentant Jews. And in verse 7 he goes on and he said to the vine dresser, look for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? The man speaks to the vine dresser, representing Jesus here, and uses a symbolic three years to show how Israel have had hundreds of years to bear fruit, to repent. But the nation has remained faith unfaithful. And it is their constant unfaithfulness which raises the question as to whether they should be cut down, i.e. judged immediately for their lack of repentance. Remember, remember the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It points to the Messiah, the coming of Christ. They had more than enough opportunity to repent. And we've seen time and time again, haven't we, throughout our journey through Luke, even when he went and he eats with Pharisees and Sadducees, they're still blind to the reality of who he is and the message he brings, often hostile to him. He goes on in verse 8, and he, Jesus, answered him, or the representation of Jesus here, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put manure, put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you cut it down. What's going on here? Well, here we see the notion that the Lord is incredibly and graciously patient with his people. Undeservedly for us or for the Jews back then, but also us. He is incredibly and graciously patient with his people. He is choosing to be patient and not just judge them immediately to see if they will repent and accept him and turn back to focus and, and, and commit themselves to him. But in this parable, there is also a sense of tension brewing 
which will result in crisis for Israel. God's patience is running thin. And at some point, the tree will be cut down and judgment will fall upon the Jewish nation as it will do for us and for the whole world. Both those who have lived before us and those who live after us. All people throughout all time, it will fall. Repentance. Repentance. Repentance is the message Jesus, or the underlying theme here that Jesus is emphasising. Repent before it is too late. Repent before tragedy strikes. Repent before the season of grace comes to an end. Has that not been his theme that's underpinned the whole of this preach that, he, that we've looked at the last four or five weeks? Repent. In this instance, Jesus isn't necessarily focused on the individual sins of those Galileans, God's curse, or the misguided theology of people in the crowd. His concern and focus is on the truth that every person will experience the full wrath of God and perish if they do not repent. Why? Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, what is repentance? We looked at this on uh, last Sunday, last Sunday evening's communion service, for those of you who, who, who were able to be there. And what I said was that repentance is often associated with, or it was for me for many years, just saying sorry to God for something that I've done. Oh, I shouldn't have done that, sorry Lord. Or, stopping doing something we shouldn't be in that moment. Oh, I shouldn't be doing this, so I'll, I'll, I better stop it. Sorry Lord. Now where repentance does include these things, I would suggest that we often miss its deeper meaning. Its deeper meaning. Metanoah, to have another mind, repentance means. To have another mind, to change our thinking, to change our perspective on something. You see, saying sorry doesn't often hold much weight. How many times have people come up to you and just gone, oh yeah, sorry. And you know, you know that they just don't really mean it. They're just going through the motion because that's what we do. Of course, people do. There are people who do mean it when they say sorry, but there is oftentimes, you know, think think for those who've got children. Think about when they're growing up. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but quite often, quite often, what happens? Do they ever never? Do they never ever do that again? No. It's the same when we say sorry to God when we've done something, but then in no time at all, we're going back and doing the same thing. So just saying, if repentance was just saying sorry to God, it wouldn't hold a great deal of weight, would it? And we wouldn't change because of it. And stopping ourselves during a sinful act 
but not doing anything to prevent it in the future will again result in us reoffending, doing what we did that we knew was wrong. I know I've been guilty of this over the past, and I'm sure if I was to pass a mic around, everyone would probably say the same. I won't do that, don't panic. But with help from God, with help from his word, with dedication and help from fellow believers, which is why being part of a body is so important, we can actively change our mind toward the sins in our life, the things that we know are wrong, that are counter to what God wants. It is possible. The reason it's possible is because if it wasn't, repentance wouldn't be a thing. It is possible. All things are possible with God's help. And in doing so, this will result in a permanent recalibration, if you will, of our approach to that sin, meaning that when that sin rears its head again, or when that event where we know we could easily step into a sinful act rears its head, we have a foundation to say no. No. Now, if you were here at that communion service, don't answer this. Okay? Two questions. What was John the Baptist's message? Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. What was the first thing Jesus preached on? The very first thing Jesus preached on. John gave you a clue. Repent. Repent, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Friends, do not underestimate the importance of repentance. Repentance is at the heart of the gospel message, a call to turn from our sinful actions, our rebellious nature toward our God, to change our worldly minds to align with God's mind and to choose to receive the restoration of our broken lives by the blood that Jesus shed on that cross. And in doing so, Praise God we receive reconciliation with God, forgiveness for our sins, and life everlasting. Amen. But we must, we must also remember that repentance is not just for the day of our conversion. As some people do think. But it is for every day every moment of our lives. Remember, associate the meaning of that word repentance to your everyday. It's a change of mindset. Am I doing things in my life that is holding me back from being all I can be in Christ? Are there hooks in me from the world? Then you need to repent of them. If you need to say sorry, say sorry. But it's about changing your mind, leaning upon God's word, asking your close friends to turn around and and say to you, listen, I'm struggling in this area. It's holding me back from from this journey that I'm on of being Christ-like. I need your help. I need you to pray for me. I need you to keep an eye on me. 
If I want to go to that pub and have three or four beers, but I know in doing so that I get nasty, stop me going to the pub. Whatever it is, I'm just using that as an analogy. Whatever it is. If I'm addicted to porn, tell someone. Or be under no illusion, it's one of the biggest aspects of the world, full stop, let alone in Christianity, that people struggle with. Lust. You struggle with that. Reach out to people. Lean upon God's word. And don't put yourself in a situation where you can be lustful. Unfortunately, a lot of the TV we watch these days, you've got men and women all over the place showing everything they want to show. Avoid it. That's where it's in your hands, but God will help you do that, as well as those around you will help you do that. Do not underestimate the importance of repentance. But what a wonderful thing to help us on this journey, particularly for Christians, well, only for Christians, to help us grow in the likeness of Christ, God gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a gift. What a gift to help keep us on the path, to teach us, to guide us, and crucially when it comes to repentance, to convict us. If you're getting that sense in your heart, I shouldn't be doing this. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit pulling you up. Don't ignore it. Friends, no one knows the time or the hour in which the Lord will require our souls and take us from this earth. When he comes back, it could be today, it could be a thousand years from now. But the urgency in my heart today, again, is to appeal to those of you here who have not yet surrendered to Jesus, who are still sitting on the fence. Do you really, just be honest, just for a moment, do you really want to gamble with this? Do you really want to gamble? Do you really want to take that chance that what I'm saying is a load of rubbish? Really? What have you got to lose? I'll tell you what you've got to lose if you don't accept. Do you want to take that gamble? Friends, God is patient with you. He is patient with you. He does love you and he does not want you to perish, but he wants you to repent to turn away from your focus upon the world into his loving arms. P2, Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slower to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's God's heart right there. He wants you to turn to him, surrender your life to him through faith in Jesus, to love what he loves, to hate the things that he hates, to reject the unholiness of this world and embrace the holiness of Christ. Be under no illusion, he will not always be so graceful. Do not mistake God's allowing of you to live your life the way you want as weakness or even of his existence. Do not make that mistake. 
you have a choice and he is letting you in this moment make that choice. But on that day when the season of grace is over and this world comes to an end, depending on the choice you make now, you will either be rewarded for believing the gospel and surrendering to Jesus and living your life focused upon him and receiving all the benefits. Eternal life, I said last week, didn't I? This time on this earth is a blip. You can't even comprehend eternity. But 80, 90 years, maybe 100 years on this earth is nothing. Do you really want to gamble 80, 90, 100 years on this earth for eternity? Or at least an eternity of happiness and glory in God's presence? Because you'll live eternity the other way. Or depending on what you choose, you will receive eternal damnation for choosing to rebel against God, your creator. And for living, choosing to live the life you want to lead as you want to lead it. Friends, I like Frank Sinatra. Particularly Christmas. like a bit of Frank Sinatra as we're putting the Christmas trees up. But I'm sorry, the song that he wrote I did it my way. It's a lie. Well, it's not a lie. It's a falsehood. I did it my way. Often people ask for that at funerals. I did it my way. If only they knew what they were saying. It's only because we are in a season of grace. God doesn't want robots and he wants every person to choose to be or to, re- to restore relationship back with him. But he's not going to force you. If you rebel and you're like, I do not want it. I do not want it. He'll just say, fine. It's your choice. But don't complain. Don't complain when judgment falls. It was your choice. I know which one I so desperately want you to choose. But it's your choice. Can I invite the band back up, please? Church, those 1,500 souls that lost their life on the Titanic, all who perished in 9-11, and all who perished in the Grandfell Tower fire, did so in the most unimaginable and tragic circumstances. And every tragic event that has happened or will ever happen during our lifetime where people have lost their lives should drive us as Christians to have a heart of compassion, of sadness, and a desire to want to pray for everyone that's been involved in that. But there is a truth that Jesus was making to the crowd that should make all of us sit up and take note. There is a tragedy coming the likes the world has never seen. Never seen. And that will fall upon Judgment Day. What a tragedy for those who did not accept the call. None can avoid it. None can avoid that day. None can run from it. And none can barter their way out of it. 
all humanity is sinful, but because of God's grace, grace inaugurated by Jesus, his sacrificial act upon the cross, all can be saved from that tragedy. What a gift. It still blows my mind. What a gift. Through simply recognising that you are living a selfish life in opposition to your Creator and God, choosing to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, repenting of everything that God hates and committing to dedicating your life to follow his ways and live the rest of your days on this earth in sure and steadfast hope of eternal life. He didn't make it very hard. He didn't make it very hard. It's very easy, but it requires repentance. It requires commitment to Jesus. But ultimately, it requires faith that Jesus is who he says he is and he, he has done what he said he's done and he will do at the end of days what he promises to do for his church. In closing, I just want to read a comment by Thomas R. Schreiner on this passage that we've been looking at today. He says this, Every wrinkle on our bodies is a parable reminding us of the consequence of sin. It reminds us that we are dying. Every disease is a wake-up call telling us that there is something wrong with the world. And every ache and pain is a signal we have sinned. All must cling to the cross of Christ as our only hope in the day of judgment and do deeds worthy of repentance. Amen. Amen.